Welcome to the Business Design Podcast. I'm Dr. Kent. And I'm Randy Baker. And our Business Design Podcast, well, I guess it talks about business and design. But we talk to interesting folks, including today's guest, who is a baseball nut. You know, and speaking of baseball nuts, do O. Henry's have nuts in them? Why are you asking me that? How would I know? I was that? thinking about baseball parks, like, you know, peanuts, different nuts, and O. Henry chocolate bars, because our guest is named Henry DeVries. Henry DeVries. But interesting fact, you're going to have to listen to the interview, but he's been to a specific number of baseball parks and find out which one is his favorite and which one is his second favorite. That's right. There's a, a virtual buffet of famous Warrens in this interview as well. That was cool. I like that. So before we give you anything more away, let's go straight to the interview with Henry DeVries. Nice to talk with you, Henry. Um, I have to ask for the benefit of our listeners who can't see you, explain all of the colors that we're seeing right now, which goes from, you know, your shirt to the, to the book, to the, to the, pencils in the cup and all of it well the shirt's uh, dark blue it is part of our corporate colors which is it's indie books international so the globe is our logo and we go with blues and greens so wearing a, a dark blue an ocean blue shirt and then um i have my uh warren buffett book uh, my bestseller behind me and uh, Forbes magazine cover. I write for Forbes.com. So that's the framing. You skipped all the good stuff that you told us before the interview is that, that the really, the really sexy bits. That <laughs> so I, I have a cup full of pens and it has a, a pretty blonde woman who says more caffeine. I've got lives to run. So that's a tribute to my wife. There we go. So I like that. So now I have the full picture. So, We've got Warren Buffett, we've got a mug full of pencils, and we've got you. So what distinguishes you from everybody else out there? And, and nothing about work here, please. What, what makes you unique or weird or, you know, irascible? Anything. On a personal note, I am a baseball nut. I have visited 44 Major League Baseball parks I have three to go before I touch them all. And yes, I have tickets to the National League Championship Series, Dodgers versus Braves tomorrow. Wow. And which three have you not visited? Well, Miami. <laughs> and then... Isn't that like the cheapest flight you can buy, Miami? Oh, I have my own personal guidelines to this. I have to be invited to the city on business. So I just haven't been invited to Miami during baseball season. They invited me in January, the, the CADs. So the two others are, because of the pandemic, they wouldn't let the Toronto Blue Jays play in Toronto. So they used a minor league stadium in Buffalo and one in Tampa. So I've added those as two major league baseball parks I need to visit. I like the loopholes. You're you're not going to cheat here. You're gonna you're gonna make sure that you don't go through any loopholes. I like that. No loopholes, but I don't count the Field of Dreams in Iowa or 
a stadium in Mexico or Japan where they played a, a series. It has to be a park was a home to a team. So that's my criteria for the 47. And what's the best ballpark of all of them? The best ballpark is Wrigley Field, followed closely behind by Fenway Park in Boston. So Chicago and Boston, the old-timey ones, are the ones that I like the best. My dad grew up going to Wrigley Field every week. His dad had season tickets. So he got to see, my dad said his team sucked, but he got to see all the greats. He got to see Willie Mays and all the other teams that came to visit. And then, of course, my dad um, uh, went to medical school in Boston. So he and my mom, who was a Minnesotan girl, uh, went to a, a Fenway Park. And of course, my mom was in the Boston section cheering for the Minnesota Twins. <laughs> <laughs> and my dad had to hush her up so she didn't get taken out on, you know, uh, um, whatever, a uh, rail, I guess they say. Yeah. That's a wicked awesome story. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Wicked, yeah. wicked awesome. Those townies. Yeah. Yeah, those townies, <laughs> they, they can be rough. So, all right, suppose we should dive into business, although I'd like to talk baseball. Um, so what about your career is interesting? I mean, because there's so many people who are in books, so many people who are in branding and writing and all of that. What do you find most interesting or strange that you've come across um, during your career? Well, certainly there's a lot of people who think they have a book in them and that book needs to get out. One man called me and he said, I've written probably the greatest book that's ever been written and I'm looking for a publisher. And I said, well, that's quite an achievement there. I would think uh, the greatest book ever written, some people would say, is the Bible. Uh, so you're, you're matching yourself say. up against that. And he said, exactly. <laughs> I, the Bible got a lot of things wrong. So my book is all about all the things that are wrong in the Bible. I said, oh, well, that might be a tough sale. How many? He says, I said, you've already published it already? Yes, I published a version um, five years ago. I said, oh, well, how many copies have sold? He said, 200. I said, okay. So you've sold 200 copies in five years, and you think... This is the greatest book ever written. Yes, absolutely. I said, I don't think we're big enough for you. You need a bigger publisher than us. Um, you know, best wishes with that. Now, maybe he did write the greatest book ever written. I don't know, but he set off what we call the alarm, the uh, lunatic fringe alarm. You know, so we reap, reap. But a lot of people come to us with very good book ideas and there to help other people. And, and that's nice about our business is that we feel we've impacted so far in seven years, 10 million people by the books that our authors have published and what they've done in spreading the word about their books. So Henry, I was a little bit intrigued. Baseball is a competitive sport. You hit home runs. Warren Buffett knows something about hitting home runs. You're in a business doing books and every author wants to hit a home run. So that's one connection between those three things. But I'm more interested in Warren Buffett and how your interest in him may have driven your business. Sure. So the year was 2012, the place Indianapolis, and Tom Searcy, 
a man who I had helped ghostwrite some books for, wrote a column for Inc.com. And the column was how to close a deal like Warren Buffett. One of the readers of that column was the senior marketing editor for McGraw-Hill. And she approached Tom and said, uh, you know, we'd like you to do a book on that. And he said, I'm too busy. They kept calling and he said, I'm too busy. And finally he said, let me call Henry DeVries. So he called me and pitched the idea for the book and then said, how much would you charge to write the proposal? And then how much would you charge me to write the book? And I said, half. I'll charge you half of what that book makes. I'll do the proposal. Now, Tom said, great. And if you know a book proposal, it's 80 to 100 pages. It's a business plan. He sent an email to the editor that day and copied me. It said, Henry DeVries is on board for the project. He'll have the proposal to you next Friday. <laughs> nice. So, nice. It's like the term paper in college where you, where you forgot to attend the course for the uh, whole semester, and then you find out your term papers due, you know, in a week. Go. So I just locked myself up in a room. We call that the misery approach to writing, named after the Stephen King novel and movie. So I did the misery approach where I just locked myself in there until I came out with those 100 pages. And McGraw-Hill loved it, uh, gave us the green light. And within a year, we had that book on the market. So that, that's really interesting because I guess I want, I want to ask the question, do, do publishers actually read book proposals? Because VCs don't actually read business plans, so do publishers read book proposals? Randy, it's a great question. It speaks to a lot of movie producers don't read past the third page of the script mm -hmm. and just read the summary, the notes, and decide if they want to do it or not. In publishing, the part they go to is the marketing plan. And McGraw-Hill said that the proposal from Tom and I was the best proposal they had read in 10 years, which meant it was the best marketing plan they had read in 10 years. And the book we delivered was not the book we promised in the proposal. And they were okay with that because we delivered the marketing plan that we promised right. in the proposal. And that makes a lot of sense to me. I can understand people wanting to know how you're going to market, how you're going to find readers, how you're going to... Uh, build that audience, which is the same as in business. The VCs want to know the same thing. I was with some publishers and agents, and they said, whatever idea you submit, we've read the same idea 200 times. It's not the idea. What we're looking for is, are you qualified to execute this idea? So like with VCs, they're looking for the A-team. Mm -hmm. is, you know, is this team, because the market will change, things will happen, does this team have what it takes to get it done, to execute, no matter what happens? So back in second grade, uh, whose class were you in, Mrs.? Uh, Mrs. Phillips in second grade. Right, so so Mrs. Phillips was there in the front of the classroom, and, and she would say, Henry, Henry, uh, were you a teacher's pet? Were you a pain in her derriere? What was what was uh, little Henry good for back in the day? Mrs. Phillips wrote that one quarter she wrote, Henry's nervous and jerky. And the next quarter she said, he's not nervous anymore, 
which my father said, sounds like you're still a jerk. So I talked too much. I, I got my work done fast and talked to other kids. And my concern was not the grades. It was the citizenship report because I come from Dutch dairy farmers, stern stock, you know, an S minus on your citizenship was, <laughs> uh, what do you want to say? Politically correct. Uh, you know, uh, they would not spare the rod to spoil the child. Um, no rod was spared in my upbringing. Seems like citizenship is kind of a nice term. When I when I grew up, it was behavior. <laughs> Just behavior. Simple. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember getting an, a U in behavior. Yeah, and, and they don't really give grades. They just give strange letters, right? Strange letters, but U sounds bad. It, it was definitely unsatisfactory. Unsatisfactory <laughs> behavior. Oh, boy. Yeah. So as the jerky child, mm -hmm. did you fall in love with writing early? I wrote my first book at the age of, uh, well, in third grade when I had Miss Smith as the teacher. So I wrote my first <laughs> book then. But when I was 15, I decided how I wanted to live my life. I said, I'm going to make my living by writing and speaking. I didn't wow. know how, but I knew that is what I would do for the rest of my life. And I entered speech and journalism and everything I could. My first writing job came at the age of 15. I was hired as a columnist by the local newspaper, the Chino Champion, I'm sure you've heard of it, to cover the high school. And every week I'd have to submit a column on the news at the high school. And then it turned into a sports column, and then it turned into features. And I've been writing ever since. The Chino Champion is about the best title I've ever heard in my life. That's, that's a, it almost feels like a, sort of like your Warren Buffett book. It's sort of like a, you know, <laughs> So the, the uh, publisher, Al McCombs, who just passed away at 89, uh, the man who gave me my start, uh, he had still followed my career all the way through. When I would go into his office, he had two diplomas on his wall, and one was a degree in journalism, and the other was a uh, MBA. And I didn't, you know, I, I came from a family that no one had ever gone to college, and I looked at that, and I go like, yeah, that, that's what I'm getting, those two degrees. And, and I have a degree in communications, and I have an MBA. So MBAs, MBAs. I, I have a, an ongoing discussion with many people about the value of MBAs. So in your, in your profession, in your writing background, um, you, wrote, you write for Forbes, so I guess there's some financial background there. Have you found the MBA is worthwhile for you, and would you recommend people go and get an MBA? I was the vice president of a $5 billion financial services firm. I got there without being an MBA. They paid for my MBA if I would go into an executive program and spend two Fridays and two Saturdays and a lot of evenings doing homework to pursue it. As I was going through it, I thought it was malpractice that they made me a vice president without knowing what I learned during that study. Law, finance, accounting, HR, organizational dynamics. And was this an executive MBA or, or a standard kind of MBA? Well, this was an executive MBA. It's the same rigor, just we were all company presidents. I was a company president uh, after I left 
the uh, insurance organization. So I, I made the switch uh, during that time. But that's the group. And it was the same rigor. It was uh, taught by the same professors. And it's just critical, all those things that I didn't know before I did that. Now, I took a strange path in that I still wanted to be a writer and built my business around doing ghostwriting for CEOs. Having the MBA, I could speak their language. I could translate. Uh, <laughs> let's translate that into English. You know, just throwing around EBITDA a lot uh, is not going to get the general public. So it's the same thing with my Forbes.com column. I can take com complex business concepts, interview people, and then put them into language that people can take action with for business development. It's an interesting model. So if you were to talk about commerce versus art and uh, how you thread that needle, because I, I've, I've, I've been having that fight for years, probably will for the rest of my life, but it's, you know, if I read your books, it would probably be finding the words on one page and going, oh, I like that one little bit. <laughs> like there's a the little, it's, it's almost like the flowers that grow through the cracks, right, of the work you're doing. It's interesting you mentioned commerce and art. My daughter, Carla, was getting her PhD at NYU and was then hired by the Metropolitan Museum of Art after she got her master's degree to come on board. And I said, well, what exactly do you do, Carla? And she says, well, I work with the people in the store who sell the jewelry and then I work with the curators at the museum to make sure the pieces we sell at the store are accurate and properly reflect what the Met stands for. And I said, ah, you're at the intersection of art and commerce, exactly where a Dutchman belongs. So um, we come from a Dutch heritage. Also, when we were producing the books, you know, I, I, it's just not me. I have up to 30 people who were on 1099s helping me do various things. And my daughter, Carla, said, well, Dad, you don't think Rembrandt painted every one of those paintings, do you? He had a studio. He had help. Art and commerce, that's where we belong. Especially those, those, those guys that used to do the frescoes. You couldn't <laughs> possibly do it by yourself. There's like, it's, it's like an impossibility. Apparently, yeah. the the famous guys would just come in and do the face, <laughs> you know. Uh, and then Larry, the intern, probably picked up that, uh, you know, the grass and the flowers and those yeah. things. Yeah, yeah, you know, like the the touch of, what is it, God and Adam on the Sistine Chapel? That was probably the intern. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Michelangelo, he did that. <laughs> yeah, that was um, it. Well, if you remember the agony and the ecstasy, that novel and movie, the Pope was always coming in saying, when will you make an end? When will you make an end? So I, I, that same sort of client relationship, you know, when will you get the book done? We get it. Publishing has changed a lot. Just like the music industry, the publishing industry has moved away from the big publishers being the only ones that can actually do big deals print-on-demand is available, uh, small independent publishers like yourselves. Well, I'm not, gonna, not suggesting you're small, but independent publishing is now a, a real thing. Distribution has become much easier. Where do you see the publishing model going in the future? Oh. And, yes, the digital revolution changed publishing. 
not only print on demand and no need to do large press runs to get economies of scale, the other digital advance was in the marketing and the rise of Amazon.com as the 800-pound gorilla when it comes to selling books. And it gave independent, and we're small, a small independent publisher like us. 800 trillion pound gorilla. <laughs> What's that? 800 trillion pound gorilla. Sure, sure. <laughs> Jeff Bezos uh, didn't get to be the richest man in the world by giving away margins on the books, that's for sure. So where we're going now is we're in another digital revolution is the audiobook. People respect authors, but they don't have time to read, but they will listen to a book So through the various channels. So the growth chart of Audible books is taking off like a, a hockey stick. It's just going straight up. So that's a big trend. The other trend we see is the promotion of books through podcasts. Podcasts are just a gift that keep on that keeps on giving when you do an interview and it resides and people come and hear it. And uh, certainly that's something we advise all our authors to uh, get very active with either being a guest on other people's podcasts or even considering podcasting them themselves. So I don't know what the future will be. If there'll be holographic books or, you know, hologram of a person will pop up and read the book to you. I was I thinking, know. can I can I have um like Tinkerbell on my or, or maybe Jiminy Cricket on my shoulder just whispering a, a story to me so I can fall asleep at night? Well, well that's uh, Jiminy Cricket will be if you have conscience problems. Uh, <laughs> Tinkerbell, she was kind of a rascal. She she's like uh, she's a, what do you call it, an enabler. That's true. <laughs> she was stuck do in it. his boyhood. Come on, do it. Yeah. Tinkerbell was the enabler. Let's talk about that. Well, you have a dark mind. I like it. It's very good. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you don't know the half of it. <laughs> so we like to keep these interviews pretty short. This has been really fun so far. Where should folks look you up, your work up, and uh, who would you be looking for uh, to connect with you? Thanks so much for asking. I work with independent consultants who want to attract higher paying clients by marketing with a book and a speech. My model is not about how many books you sell. It's about how you can have more credibility, more impact, more influence. And I say the book is the starting line, not the finish line. It's more important what happens after you publish the book on that road to impact and influence. So part of my business is I stay on board. I train people in this. I have a faculty of people who are best-selling authors and speakers, and they help train these people. So they can go to Indie, I-N-D-I-E, books, B-O-O-K-S-I-N-T-L.com. That's my website. And on it, there's a learning center with a lot of articles on it. You certainly can see my articles in Forbes.com. And if somebody is serious about this, I offer people a 30-minute, no-cost, no-obligation strategy call. I call it a book chat. And I help them get clarity around the goals for doing a book, the assets that they have, what the roadblocks are, and then clarity on how other people who were in their shoes got from where they are right now to where they want to go. Beautiful. That was really good. We really appreciate you being on our show today. Um, thank you so much, Henry, and we hope to talk to you again soon. 
Thank you very much. It's so nice to be with you and to talk about my favorite subjects, books and baseball. Uh, and Tinkerbell, I have a completely different impression of her now, so I, I appreciate that as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can tell you some dark things offline about Tinkerbell. <laughs> that was the sound of a face, what do they call it, a face slap? Yeah, palm. Self, a palm, fa head palm, face palm, something. Yeah, yeah, face palm. Nice to chat, V. This has been fun. Nice to chat, guys. Well, thank you, Henry. I love the story about the, the baseball parks and being to one extra that doesn't actually exist. Isn't that what he said? There was one that was only there for one season or something? I, I can't actually. I was too busy thinking about the, the Buffett story and wasn't listening to that part. That's right. Yeah, I mean, you know, disassociated from that, I was just pretending to be out in a boat listening to a Jimmy Buffett song, you know, waiting to catch a home run out of some ballpark that's right next to the water. But it was really fun talking about books and and business and, and having a couple laughs with Henry. This was fun. Yeah, and I found his Dutch heritage particularly interesting and the family business and all that sort of stuff. So thanks, Henry. Really appreciate your time. And uh, I know our listeners enjoyed that interview. So if the water's rising, put on your clogs and uh, clog on over to uh, our website. You'll find about out about all the things that we've got going on. There's a lot of stuff in there that, well, you'll be surprised what... Dr. Kent myself got our fingers in, not just in the dike. <laughs> that's that's not a filthy reference, just, just so everybody knows, even though we're chuckling. There's actually a super famous story about the boy with his, with his finger. fingers in the dike. <laughs> All right. Take care, everybody. <laughs> we will talk to you soon. <laughs> <laughs>